Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Daily Pravda. On February 1st, the Myanmar military took over the country. It was a surprise move from the Tatmadaw led by General Ming Aoliang. The military suspended the civilian government and the facto leader of the country and Nobel Prize winner Aung Suu Kyi was imprisoned. The initial reaction of the public was muted, but soon the demonstration began. Kunta reacted with brutality, murders, and torture. According to the right groups, more than 800 people have been killed so far. What's next for Myanmar? How strong is the regime? Will the situation deteriorate even further? I talked to Hunter Marston. He's a PhD candidate at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University and non-resident fellow at Pacific Forum. Listen to our conversation. A coup in Myanmar took place almost four months ago. How consolidated is the position of the regime? Well, the regime's position is probably best described as half consolidated. And I suppose you could read that in more cynical or more more optimistic ways, uh, given which direction you interpret events. The regime guarantees its own power by the uh, control of the armed forces and uh, guns and violence but it's barely managed to get control over banks and various um, civil servants and uh, ministries of government. The economy has essentially ground to a halt and the country is quickly becoming uh, what we would call a failed state. So the military essentially presides over this quasi failed state and it has power only because it has more guns than the opposition. What does it mean for the regime? The military must know what is the situation. And of course, it is possible to govern over the semi-failed state, but what you can get out of this? Uh, Do you see any adjustment of the policies of the regime or basically the military is just sticking to their guns because they don't have anything else? Well, the regime has stuck to its policies, which are not very sophisticated. But some of those policies do include uh, appealing to various ethnic armed groups to preserve the national ceasefire agreement that has been in place with some ethnic armed groups to preserve a fragile peace. Uh, It's also reached out to some ethnic political parties to incorporate them into its regime. And this has split some of the parties that also found the National League for Democracy of Aung San Suu Kyi not to reflect its interests or their interests. So some of these political parties um, have really split. And we've also seen this in in light of various ethnic armed organizations like the Karen National Union, which is holding its own uh, internal elections this week. Various leaders of that group have actually disagreed on whether or not to um, support the ceasefire with the military or to support the protesters who are uh, resisting the military junta. Um, So some of the military's tactics have been successful in preventing a larger unified opposition against it. Maybe if we look at the at the beginning, is it now clear why why the Tatmadaw, led by General 
Mingaung Hyang uh, decided for the coup in February? There are different pieces of evidence to look at, I suppose. Uh, the first is that his retirement age was approaching very quickly in July. He was about to turn or is about to turn 65. Uh, just this week, uh, the junta removed the mandatory retirement age to allow him to stay in power. So I think a lot of this comes down to his own personal political ambition. Um, he had no direct path to the presidency. If the USDP party, the opposition to the National League for Democracy, uh, didn't control many seats, you know, it, it, it performed very poorly in the 2020 election, then he didn't have enough votes, even with 25% of uh, Myanmar military unelected in parliament to vote him into the presidency. Uh, so it seems to me that a lot of this comes down to his own greed for power. Um, but at the same time, I think he's managed to convince military supporters in the country uh, and that that's primarily folks within the military, active duty soldiers, junior officers, that the military's line of propaganda that there was electoral fraud is real to them. I think enough of them have been repeating this rhetoric that the claim of election fraud is believed and the military has followed through by disbanding uh, and reappointing its own election commission officials. So I think whether or not this is superficial and whether or not it's central to the military's coup and Min Ong Hlaing's decision to go through with the coup is not really the point. But I think it it's impossible to ignore it because this is the pretext, the constitutional grounds which Min Ong Hlaing has used to justify his coup. How much have you been surprised by the brutality the regime is using against the protesters? I've been very surprised. At first, in the first two weeks, the military and police largely just stood back and observed and monitored. It used some some restraint at first, which was encouraging. And you saw these you saw upwards of a million people across the country marching in the streets. It was really encouraging. But then, of course, the military used its old familiar tactics, uh, which we've seen before in 2007 and 1988, most notably in nationwide protests. It does not hesitate to shoot its own citizens to restore what it sees as stability and order in the country. Um, the brutality, though, in this case has been astounding because the military has shot children, has targeted innocent people bicycling down the street, and also it's, it's tortured uh, supporters of the National League for Democracy in Aung San Suu Kyi, who it's detained. So in some cases, it's uh, arrested people and then notified their family the next day or a week later to come collect their dead body with signs of, of really terrible treatment, just brutal torture and all sorts of barbaric behavior. So I think that's intentional because it's, it's trying to instill fear in, in the people to stop protesting, but it's surprising just that they've gone after so many people rounding, rounding up civilians in their homes and uh, targeting all sorts of uh, critics, but also people who have taken no part in protests, just bicycling down the street. It's shot people in the head at, at you know, uh, standing on the side of the street, observing protests, not even participating. Um, so that, that level of brutality has been surprising to me. Why do you think it's happening? Would you say that the region was basically surprised by the reactions of the people to the coup? I think it has been surprised. I, I think 
uh, Minong Hlaing and the military are surrounded by people who report positive messages upwards. So the military probably didn't have a clear understanding that the USDP party, which it had created, would perform so terribly in the election. I think it's embarrassing to the military. And at the same time, the amount of propaganda and military-run media consumed within um, the military has probably led Minong Hlaing to think that the coup would be more popular than it has been. So the extent, the enormous extent of popular protest and resistance to the coup across the country has probably surprised the military. And I think it's used these tactics of torture and, and barbaric brutality to uh, create fear in the population to uh, convince them to stop protesting. But at the same time, it's really undermined any political legitimacy that they could hope to have. So whether Minong Hlaing wants to follow the Thai example, for instance, of Prayut Chanocha, who took over the military, put on a suit and became prime minister, I, I think it's very unlikely that, actually, I think it's impossible that Minong Hlaing could ever have that sort of political support at home, uh, mm -hmm. just because his military has made the people its enemy. And mm -hmm. that Minong Hlaing is not as smart as Prayut Chanocha. If we talk a bit about the opposition, we have witnessed huge street demonstrations, an announcement of creating the People's Defense Force, and even a big gesture of Miss Myanmar at the Miss Universe stage. How can you describe the state of the Myanmar opposition? Does it have any structure? Yeah, um, it does have a structure. And the uh, what emerged at first was the committee representing the parliament, or Kirongsu Hluta, CRPH. Um, that represented the elected leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi and President Win Myint of the National League for Democracy. Uh, soon after that, it formed a national unity government, which sought to bring in more ethnic political leaders from various parts of the country in an inclusive way that talked about federalism and uh, democracy in, in unique ways, much more inclusive nature than Myanmar's government has shown um, under the NLD or USDP in the past decade. So that was promising, uh, and I think it brought more support from ethnic political parties and armed groups. Um, in the, you, you note the People's Defense Force, uh, which the National Unity Government has also given its approval to. This is sort of the beginning of a federal army, and the, the People's Defense Force has essentially given its approval and support for local militia in various states, like the Chin National Defense Force, that uh, say they will support the objectives of the People's Defense Force and the National Unity Government. So we're starting to see how these pieces fit together in a federated structure across the country. And the state of that is still ongoing because we haven't really seen a hierarchy or centralized control over this disparate resistance movement. But it's becoming more and more clear that people from around the country, particularly the Bama um, ethnic majority group in central Myanmar, are moving out to the countryside, uh, such as in Karen State, to seek to join up with this militia group and train in the use of weapons to resist the military uh, in an armed capacity. So uh, it's still unclear how this will manifest, but as we see these links forming, these relationships and trust building between urban centers, the protest movement, and ethnic armed groups, 
I think that the military will really start to uh, reconsider the nature of the threat um, of the opposition. Doesn't that mean that we might see in, uh, really a big scale civil war in Myanmar? Yes, that's, that's quite likely. Myanmar has been at war uh, since the late 1940s, especially with the Karen group, which the British had uh, collaborated with very closely. And the early independence government of Aung San, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, had promised a great deal more power and autonomy to, along with the Shan ethnic groups. These, these groups have been fighting the Myanmar military and central state for more than 70 years now. But what's new now is the extent of opposition across the country, meaning that the Myanmar military might have to fight more than a dozen different groups simultaneously, which it's never had to do before, while barely hanging on to control over uh, Naypyidaw, Yangon, and various um, bureaucracies and banks and institutions of government, which are now failing. What might be the role of Aung San Suu Kyi? She's of course in prison. But we have been talking about the brutality of the regime, but it seems that Junta were not willing to physically harm her so far. Let's say the regime will fall. Will she be back as the leader of the country? Yeah, this is a very good question. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, to many uh, in Myanmar, represents the country's democratic awakening, the movement from 1988, and the original mission of her father, General Aung San, to create a genuine federal union independent from its colonial legacy. But interestingly, the conversation in the country has moved on very quickly to include uh, forces which did not trust Aung San Suu Kyi and did not support the National League for Democracy. In many ways, the uniting factor between all these different resistance movements and factions in the country is their opposition to the military and not their support for Aung San Suu Kyi, which means it's uncertain what role she will have in any future government. Uh, right now, she is nominally still the state councilor and leader of the National League for Democracy in the National Unity government, but once the the sequence of events that comes now could very quickly lead to a position where a new leader emerges perhaps of a younger generation or ethnic minority group which symbolizes a broader unity in the country a broader democratic resistance to the military and perhaps replaces her in some way talking about resistance i have mentioned miss myanmar tuza win she appeared on stage of the Miss Universe Beauty Contest holding the banner, Pray for Myanmar. How important is such a gesture? I think it has two levels of symbolic importance. Um, and I, I think it's more symbolic than anything, but it reminds the world that Myanmar is still suffering and there's still a crisis, which uh, a great deal of the media has moved on from given the you know, various crises every week, uh, COVID in India spreading around Asia and the Israel-Palestine conflict now. So the world is, is um, occupied with many crises, but this high level attention to the Myanmar crisis is timely and uh, hopefully keeps the world's attention. And it's the world's attention that will mobilize any international response and diplomatic action to uh, end the coup in Myanmar. Uh, at the same time, it's probably probably an embarrassment to the Myanmar military. I'm not sure if Min Aung Hlaing is watching this this uh, Miss Universe pageant, but um, you know when representatives of the country Myanmar go out on the world stage, and this is true of the UN ambassador 
Xiaomotun, who abdicated from the uh, Myanmar military junta, or he opposed directly in the UN General Assembly the Myanmar military and called for the world to act to overthrow that or oppose the uh, Myanmar military junta. I think that's a big embarrassment for the junta, which is trying to cling on to any semblance of legitimacy uh, in the eyes of the international community. The international community is a very broad term, but how do you assess the reaction of the international community to the coup in Myanmar? Was it uh, satisfying or maybe a bit weak? It's not satisfying, um, but at the same time, it's unclear what real options are available to the international community. What do options? What options do you see? Except well, of the, except what was what was tried, uh, some sanctions yeah, and and right, right, right. yeah. So we've seen we've seen all the economic sanctions from Western countries. Certain countries that have a lot of influence have not done enough yet. Uh, I think Japan is one of those. You know, Japan's um, suspended uh, new official development assistance, which is promising. Uh, but it so far has not imposed any sanctions on the Myanmar military. I, I haven't seen an update to say that they've decided anything, but yes, they, they've said they're ready to freeze uh, all aid. Beyond that, I think Singapore is another major player which could back away from its investment in the country and signal its displeasure with the military by doing more than simply making statements. Um, Singapore is a powerful player within ASEAN, the Association of South Asian Nations as well, but we still haven't seen a special envoy from uh, ASEAN a month after a summit in uh, Indonesia, which promised to do so. So that would be an important step. At the same time, the UN just postponed a vote on a non-binding resolution regarding an arms embargo. It would be great to see that move forward. Uh, an arms embargo is purely a, a first step, and this is a non-binding resolution. So if the international community can't even do that, it's not clear what more tangible action they can achieve. Uh, and then finally, Thailand is a friend of, um, uh, well, not finally, I have a couple more points, but Thai Thailand is a friend of Myanmar's and has shielded the Myanmar military from criticism uh, and action. Thai Prime Minister and General Prayut Chan-ocha actually skipped the ASEAN Special Summit in Indonesia last month, which sends a signal of support for his friend Minong Hlaing, the senior general in Myanmar. And then, of course, you have China and Russia. China is sort of sitting on the fence. Um, it could do a lot more, and it's possible that it will. Uh, but so far, it's sort of given space for the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to take the lead here. China is the largest provider of weapons to the Myanmar military and largest investor in the country. Actually, sorry second largest investor, I believe, after Singapore. In any case, it's it's a huge trading partner of the country, uh, shares a border. So Xi Jinping and, and Chinese diplomats could do a lot more to signal to the Myanmar military that they're not happy, perhaps cutting trade, because I think they would prefer to have a res, uh, return to elected government in the country, which was better for their business. With trade already going down, I think it, it, they have options to signal that they're not happy. And instead of continuing to support the military with ongoing trade and investment projects, they could freeze those, uh, which would speed up a return to uh, elected government in the country, which would be better for their economy in the long run. Uh, and then finally, Russia, I think, has gone even more, has gone even further towards supporting the Myanmar military 
really signaling that it's a friend uh, of Russia and that it prioritizes its relationship with the Myanmar military. So I think uh, Western countries should consider how their sanctions and secondary sanctions could impact Russian businesses and EU uh, businesses that are cooperating with Russian companies that invest in Myanmar. Perhaps um, those secondary sanctions could start to hit Russian businesses and investment in Myanmar, which would make uh, Russia back away from its overt support for the military. Basically, if we can talk a bit more about Russia and China, and to paraphrase the words of Leon Trotsky, you might not be interested in great power competition, but great power competition is interested in you. Many things, especially in the DC, are perceived through the lenses of the great power competition. Do you think that Myanmar may become intentionally or not a proxy issue in the area of the great power competition? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think in many ways, Myanmar has long been an object of great power competition already, and it's learned how to balance external competition for influence uh, quite skillfully across various governments. Um, so if you look at the Cold War until now, Myanmar has variously uh, turned out to the world to engage in multilateral diplomacy and turn inwards when it uh, suits its own interests to avoid uh, great power competition. And I speak about turning outwards during the years of the UNU government in the 50s. Um, Myanmar or Burma then was very proactive in engaging with the United Nations and various uh, neighbors like India and China. I think Burma was the first country, non-communist country to recognize the People's Republic of China, in, at least in Southeast Asia. Um, so UNU had a very proactive foreign policy on the world stage. After UNU, the uh, military dictatorship of General Ne Win much more looked inwards and turned away from the world. Uh, but at the same time, it consolidated the military's power within the country and fought against the uh, Chinese nationalist forces in the north of the country. Since, since the end of military dictatorship in 2010, Myanmar's foreign policy once again was proactive in looking out to the world and forging partnerships and uh, engaging other countries for investment in a way that reduced its reliance on China, uh, which the military had steadily started to rely more and more on uh, in the 90s and 2000s. And I think today the uh, geopolitical landscape is similar because you know, the, the country or Myanmar's generals have more than simply China to look to. They're using Russia, they're using India, they're using uh, Japan uh, as all of these external uh, balances to reliance on China. So they're actually not quite alone despite the international outcry against the coup. Uh, and unfortunately they have more support that uh, they can rely on beyond China. Uh, including Russia and even democracies. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.